Would you please open your Bibles with me to the Old Testament prophet Habakkuk? And we're going to read chapter one as we continue our journey through um, that book, which we began last week. Use the index, because you may well not find it otherwise. It does move around that book quite a lot. Uh, feel free to use your index and find it. Uh, but if you can find, uh, if you know where Daniel is, it's a couple of books after Daniel. And if you know where Malachi is, it's a couple of books before that. We're going to read uh, chapter 1 from verse 1 down to verse uh, 14. The oracle that the prophet Habakkuk saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not listen? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see wrongdoing? And look at trouble. Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law becomes slack and justice never prevails. The wicked surround the righteous. Therefore judgment comes forth perverted. Look at the nations and see. Be astonished. This is God's reply. Look at the nations and see. Be astonished. Be astounded, for a work is being done in your days that you would not believe if you were told. For I am rousing the Chaldeans, that fierce and impetuous nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. Dread and fearsome are they, their justice and dignity proceed from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more menacing than wolves at dusk. Their horses charge. Their horsemen come from far away. They fly like an eagle, swift to, to devour. They all come for violence with faces pressing forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff and of rulers they make sport. They laugh at every fortress and heap up earth to take it. Then they sweep by like the wind. They transgress and become guilty. Their own might is their God. Habakkuk then replies to God's reply, Are you not from of old, O Lord my God, my Holy One? You shall not die. O Lord, you have marked them for judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for punishment. Your eyes are too pure to behold evil, and you cannot look on wrongdoing. Why do you look on the treacherous? And why are you silent when the wicked swallow those more righteous than they? You have made people like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. God always blesses the public reading of his inspired and his infallible word. This morning, we come to the second um, exploration of this little book together. And we're going to look at verses two through to 11 of chapter one. And I want to explore with you the question of um, what happens or where is God when things are falling apart? And you won't find all the answers in these verses, but you will find some truths that can help you when things seem to be going dreadfully wrong in your life and everything seems to happen. And I really want to talk to you about three simple ideas. Um, truth, tone, and trust. But we'll get to those in a moment. Uh, first of all, let me set the context. 
If you look at Habakkuk chapter one, verse one, you will see that it says the oracle that the prophet Habakkuk saw, the word for oracle in Hebrew, uh, these are just some preliminary observations for you to help you get a context, is burden or weight. Habakkuk, the name Habakkuk means one who clings. You could almost describe it or define it as one who clings desperately. So you begin to get a hint of what this book might be about and what this message might be about as we explored briefly last week, looking at it in outline. Around about um, somewhere between 640, 638 and 595 or 596 BC, Habakkuk was uh, alive and ministering. In a part of Israel called the Southern Kingdom, I said this last week, but it's important for you to be reminded of it this morning. The, the bottom tip of um, the nation of Israel had two clans in it, um, Judah and Benjamin. The top 10 clans had been taken, taken into captivity about 100 years or so, depending on when this was actually delivered, before this, by an empire called the um, Assyrian Empire. And the bottom two tips, the bottom two bits, the bottom two clans of Israel, the southern kingdom, had watched that happen and never assumed or never thought, never believed that it would happen to them. Habakkuk, the one who clings, is an example of a righteous person crying out to God when they look around them and they see unrighteousness prospering. When they see wickedness getting away with it. When they see people saying things and doing things and God not seeming to intervene. It isn't the cry of a person whose personal life is falling apart, although it could be. But that's not what it is. Habakkuk's letter is a letter or is, a, is, a, is an example of a, of a prayer of someone crying out to God with a heavy burden, with a heavy sense of weight. Uh, some Bibles call it an oracle in chapter one, verse one. Others translate the word burden. It's a, a, a burden that he saw, a burden that he experienced, a burden that he looked around and he, he saw um, wickedness prospering. He saw unrighteousness prevailing. He saw unfairness, inequity, injustice. And like many people down through the years who are in relationship with Almighty God said, this is not congruent with your character. This doesn't seem to fit with the kind of God you've told me that you are. So why do your people who are living in wickedness get away with it? It's not fair, it's not right, it's not proper. I don't understand it. Anybody who has been a follower of Jesus Christ for any length of time will have asked similar questions. They'll have seen wickedness prospering in a church, in a society, in a denomination. They'll have seen churches that have walked away from gospel truth or abandoned biblical authority or allowing things to happen which seem to be completely in contradiction to the teaching of the Bible. And they're left scratching their heads saying, why have you not intervened? Why aren't you doing something about that? Why aren't you stepping in to change this situation? It's unfair. They're telling God, of course, how to do, the, do his job. But all of us have a why question. Some of us, when we go through things in our church life, have a why question. Why did you not stop that from happening? Why did you not intervene and cause that not to take place? Some of us have that question of the church in the United Kingdom or the church in GB or here in Northern Ireland. 
Why are you allowing such um, unspiritual life to permeate across the church, Lord? Why don't you intervene? I was uh, speaking at a, a, a big convention not so long ago uh, where I was teaching on standing solidly on the Bible's truth. And um, I thought it would go quite well. I was looking forward to it, and it did go well. But of the four or five days that I was going, um, and I was doing the main Bible teaching each morning, looking at uh, 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, um, a number of significant leaders in this stream that I was speaking into came and were either aggressive or abusive or antagonistic because I was suggesting that we should take our authority for what we believe from the Bible. That we should be challenging things that are happening in our culture from a biblical perspective. And many of them were saying, that's wrong. And each night as I prayed for that conference and all that were present, I found myself saying to God, why don't you intervene here? (laughs) Why don't you do something so that there's a sense of rightness about this? Why don't you cleanse or deliver or release or renew or strengthen this movement so that it can get back to scripture? Have you ever asked that about the church? Maybe you've prayed and said, Lord, uh, there used to be a phrase for Glasgow, it's uh, being abbreviated to uh, prosper. But Glasgow's city motto was, let Glasgow prosper by the preaching of your word and the praising of your name. Now it's just let Glasgow prosper. But obviously um, the, the root of that phrase was let Glasgow flourish by the preaching of your word and by the praising of your name. And as Christians, as followers of Jesus Christ, We believe that cities, towns, nations, communities, individuals, families, homes prosper by the preaching of God's word and by the praising of his name. So when we see that being abandoned, something rises in us and we have lots of different questions. Habakkuk is an answer to those questions. And his fundamental question to God, as I said last week, is why are you letting this happen? Look at verse two for a moment with me. How long shall I cry for help and you will not listen? Or cry to you violence and you will not save. Number, verse three, why do you make me see wrongdoing and, not, and look at trouble? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. Verse four, so the law becomes slack and justice never prevails. The wicked surround the righteous. Therefore, judgment comes forth perverted. That's Habakkuk's first complaint. And his first complaint is this. Why do those people seem to prosper? And secondly, Why does your word seem to be paralyzed in this situation? That's what verse four indicates to us. The law becomes slack and justice never prevails. The wicked surround the righteous, therefore judgment comes forth perverted. Habakkuk looks at what's going on around him in his his people and he says, your word is supposed to have power and it, it, it is slack. There are reasons for that. And here in this text, we need to dig around it a little bit to understand what God might be saying to us today. You see, Habakkuk lived in a a season when Israel had gone through great reforms just a few years before under the leadership, the southern kingdom of Israel had gone through great reforms under the leadership of a king called Josiah. He had renewed the, Lord's, the commitment to the Lord. He had broken down altars. He had took, taken away all of the, um, the false altars and all of the, the wickedness that was taking place in Israel, uh, the southern kingdom. He had done away with much of it, not all of it, but much of it. If Habakkuk is 
alive and ministering at the end of his reign, at the beginning of the next king's reign, which is almost certainly when he was, then within one generation, they'd gone backwards. But he may well have lived with people who remembered the time when God was moving. And for 40 or 50 years, the people of God had been moving away from the truth. They'd been moving away from God's uniqueness. They'd been moving away from his claims. So Habakkuk's question, actually, if he stopped and paused, he probably knew his own answer. Why are you letting these people get away with it? And God perhaps could have said back to him, I've been watching for a hundred years as my people have walked further and further away from me. I'm not an automaton, I'm not a, I'm not a commander, I'm not a, you're not a robot in my hand, I don't program you to do something, you have choices, you have decisions that you have to make and I have watched for generation after generation as you have walked further and further away from me. God never speaks in a vacuum and we never speak to him in a vacuum. Habakkuk's questions of Almighty God could, were, were as much questions of his people as they were of God. Why are you continue walking away from God? When we set our backs to God's will and way, we paralyze his word in our lives. We make it slack. Why is it that the Bible can be read by millions and millions and millions and millions of people, but only impact some of them? Because of the position of the person reading it. Because of the perspective of the person picking it up. One of the core messages in the book of Habakkuk is the gift of faith is absolutely required in our interaction with Almighty God. What good is it to the southern kingdom of Israel to know who God is and not walk in his ways? What good is it to claim that you are his people and ignore his precepts? What good is it to look at the world around you and say this is all unfair when you are an example yourself of walking away from God's purposes and plans? All of that is contained within this complaint. John Stott, the famous evangelical Anglican, many, many years ago in his book on the Sermon on the Mount, said this, when you look at society and it is rotten to the core, don't blame society, ask the church what it's been doing for 50 years. When meat goes off, he goes on to say in the book, it's not because of the, it's what happens to meat that isn't preserved. If meat has gone off, it's because the salt has stopped working. Now, there's a fundamentally difficult and challenging question, therefore, for those of us that are in this room or watching online. If our society is going wrong, what has the church been doing? It's a profoundly hard question because the society that we're part of is influenced by our witness and our presence or our absence of witness and our absence of presence. One of the challenging things about um, church history, if you look at it closely, is, is the way in which God permits his people to turn their back on him, but then people around them have to live with the consequences of that. Do you know what the most Christianized nation on the African continent is? Rwanda. the scene of the East African revivals in the 60s and the 70s. 
So what went wrong? That within 100 days, 25 years ago, a million people were killed by Christians, amongst others. Do you know what the, now the most Christianized part of the continent of Europe is? Northern Ireland. So what goes wrong? When a part of Europe which is so Christianized can be known more for violence than it is for the gospel. Do you know what the most Christianized professional industry is in Europe? Banking. So what went wrong when choices made by senior bankers and managers went so wrong selfishly that the whole world was plunged into a recession in 2008? Habakkuk's cry, why are you allowing this, is a cry that some of us might have too. And God's response is profoundly challenging. First of all, he makes clear that he sees what's happening. He knows what's going on. Secondly, he tells Habakkuk that the very people that um, he thinks are furthest away from uh, God's purposes and plans, the Chaldeans, sometimes called the Babylonians, are the ones that God is going to use to bring judgment upon his own people. And in verses five through to verse 10, God makes it clear that he knows everything about them. He knows that they are vindictive. He knows that they are cruel. He knows that they destroy people. He knows that they build fortresses. He knows that they have hugely powerful resources. He knows the way they treat human beings. He knows that they have strength that comes from their own self-confidence and arrogance. Verse 10, at kings they scoff and of rulers they make sport. They laugh at every fortress and heap up earth to take it. Then they sweep by like the wind, they transgress and become guilty. Their own might is their God. God knows everything about them and yet is still using them to achieve his purposes and his plans. God's response to Habakkuk's why is a difficult answer. He doesn't actually fully answer the question other than to say, I've seen what my people are doing and I'm going to put it right. But I'm going to put it right in a way that is profoundly, profoundly surprising to you. I want you for a moment to look at verse five. This is God's response to Habakkuk's question. Look at the nations and see. Be astonished, be astounded, for a work is being done in your days that you would not believe if you were told. Now, could you flick forward in your Bible to the New Testament book of Acts and find chapter 13? The new apostle, Paul and Barnabas, are in a city called uh, Pisidian Antioch. And Paul is reasoning with the the Jewish people in that city about Jesus Christ, the Savior, the Messiah. And he sets out a whole range of arguments from God's purposes and plans in the Old Testament of the Hebrew Bible to them. But look at what he says in verse 40 of um, Acts chapter 13. Beware, therefore, that what the prophet said does not happen to you. Look, you scoffers, be amazed and perish. For in your days I am doing a work, a work that you will never believe, even if someone tells you. It's the quote from Habakkuk chapter one, verse five. In Habakkuk chapter one, verse five, God says, 
to Habakkuk when he asks the question about why the people of Israel are getting away with their sin. They're not. You will be surprised at my answer, but my answer is coming. And I'm going to use the very people that oppose you to be the people that um, bring judgment to you through my hand. Paul uses exactly the same phrase in Acts chapter 13 to say to the Jewish believers, God is going to do something profoundly through the Gentile world that you will look at and not even begin to understand. And he uses the same verse, the same phrase, the same words, but in a different way. Here's the point. The answer in both contexts is unexpected. It's not what they expected to hear. It's contrary to what they had culturally come to expect. So what are the questions that you and I have of God? This is where I want to spend a few minutes and talk with you about tone, about truth, and about trust. In the end, Habakkuk's answer in the first part when he asks God why this is happening is one that is so surprising that it probably causes him to stop and think. But it shouldn't have been that surprising because in Jeremiah chapter 25, verses 10 to 12, God had already told the people of Judah that the Babylonians were going to take them into captivity. And he told them how long it would be, 70 years. Sometime later, when the prophet Daniel is ministering, in chapter 9, verses 1 to 2, he refers back to that promise and it shapes everything that's going on. God has a way of answering our prayers in the most unexpected of ways. I think we are allowed to say why. And sometimes our why is an angry why. Why did you let that person die? Why did you not intervene? Why have you failed me? Why did you promise always to be there and then walk away? Why did you allow me to get ill? Why did you do that? But sometimes the tone of our why needs to be considered. Because your why to God this morning might be an angry why. But it also might be a heartbroken why. You may have come to the end of yourself. You may have come to the end of your resources, the end of your energy. You may have been through so much that you're left with nothing else other than a heartbroken why. You may have an intellectual why. You may have a relational why. You may have a resentful why. You may have a a why that comes from the very pit of your stomach. You may have a why that is wrestling with some of the great intellectual questions of faith. Thank God that you can bring those whys to God. Christianity and Judaism isn't afraid of questions. And the answers that God gives to our whys are often very different. Here in Habakkuk chapter one, God answers the question by explaining what he's going to do through the Babylonians. Now, it's not what Habakkuk wants to hear, but he does answer him. If you look at Psalm 73 for a moment, come back to that with me, flick back in your Bibles, you'll see a similar kind of question. Psalm 73 is sometimes called a plea for relief from oppressors. Verse 15 says, if I had said, I will talk on in this way, I would have been untrue. These are questions from um, the psalmist. I would have been untrue to the circle of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to be a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I perceived their end. Truly you set them in slippery places. 
You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. They are like a dream when one awakes. On awakening, you despise their phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was stupid and arrogant. I was like a brute beast towards you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel and afterwards you will receive me with honor. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire other than you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Indeed, those who are far from you will perish. You put an end to those who are false to you, but for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge to tell of all your works. Habakkuk's why is met with an immediate answer. I'm going to use the Babylonians. And then Habakkuk has another question that we'll explore next week. But they're worse than us. So your answer doesn't suffice. And God says, yes, but there's something after that. I will hold them in account and in judgment for what they've done. Psalm 73, why do the wicked prosper? Why do people get away with it? Why does this happen? The psalmist says, I was asking those questions until they were riddling my life. And it was only when I went into the sanctuary and I beheld your glory, and I remembered that you will put all things right in the end, that I was able to deal with the why. And when I remembered that, I made a choice, the psalmist says. I chose to remain with you rather than walk away from you. It's something that Habakkuk gets to, it's something that the psalmist gets to, it's something that the followers of Jesus get to. There's a story told of the followers of Jesus and as Jesus begins to talk about suffering and struggle and hardship in Matthew chapter 16, we're told in the Bible that many left him and he turned to his disciples, his closest friends, and he said, will you leave me too? And Peter said, to whom else can we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. What tone is your why? And be careful that you don't trap yourself in a never-ending cycle downwards. Those of you that know me will know that my, my life has been marked with these questions. Why did you let this happen? Why did this take place? Why wasn't I present then? Why couldn't this have been different? I think those questions are okay. I think God can handle your questions today. But when they become pathological, when they come to the place where no answer will suffice, because the why is really just another way of saying, I resent you profoundly for what you've done to me or what you've allowed to happen, something needs to break. And I wanna talk about tone a little bit more. I've really prayed about what I want to say to you now. Because I don't think in the end, God's answers to Habakkuk are necessarily the answers that Habakkuk wanted, but they are the answers that Habakkuk was given. When you read through them though, how do you think God sounded? What was his tone like? been thinking about this for about a month now. I follow what I'm about to say because it's going to sound a bit odd. Have you ever seen The Wizard of Oz? 
Anybody seen The Wizard of Oz or the yellow, whatever it's called, the Yellow Brick Road? Do you know that moment when the, the Tin Man and the Scarecrow and the Lion and um, Judy Garland, <laughs> Dorothy and Toto come face to face, well, they don't come face to face, there's a screen between them and the Wizard of Oz, who's actually only a little man from Kansas. But they come into his presence with questions about why they want a heart, they want courage, they want all the things that they want. And he thunders back at them. And they all shake. The tin man falls over, the straw falls out of the scarecrow. Do you remember that bit in the movie? I think that's how we often think God answers us when we ask him why. And it's so second nature to us that we've never stopped to say maybe he has a different tone. If you come before me and say, Malcolm, why did you allow that to happen in our church? You're our senior leader. And I respond by saying, because I'm the senior leader. <laughs> and when I say jump, you'll say hi, hi, I'm a clear. What's that going to do for our relationship? I don't think that's the way God answered Habakkuk. Because I don't think it's the way he answers a genuine why question. When Job lost everything and he questioned God and the answers began to flow in Job chapter 38, where were you when I formed the mountains? Where were you? I wonder, do we think that what actually in our mind's eye, and I can't, I, I think I'm right about this, but I might be completely wrong. I think most of us imagine that God's answer back is a thundering answer. Like the Wizard of Oz behind the screen, shaking with anger. How dare you ask me a question? But what if it's more like a father's answer that says, Where were you when I made the earth? Where were you when the stars were set in place? Where were you when the dawn breaks? Where are you every night? It's not so much driven by anger. It's driven by a profound sense of his sovereignty and his compassion. And I know that that won't be enough for many of us. But the tone of God's answer to a genuine question is never angry. It's never aggressive. It's never, get out of my sight and come back when you're behaving a bit better. God's answer to us is driven by his compassion to us. Now, there might come a moment when your why question is met with a stronger answer. God might say, why are you asking me this again? We have gone over this time and time again. And I know you're not receiving the answer that I, you want, but you are receiving the answer that I will give you. Be careful that you don't construct a tone around the voice of God in your doubts and questions that makes him a tyrant when actually he's a father and he knows the bigger picture which is so hard for us to understand. So his answer comes back about the Chaldeans. There's a truth here that Habakkuk has to hold on to. And the truth for Habakkuk is 
You don't know what I'm doing. You don't know my overarching purposes. You don't understand the fuller extent of how I'm engaging. And you're angry at me because you can only see this part of the answer. I think we need to be careful not to translate Habakkuk's question about the, church, the, the Jewish people, the people of the southern kingdom, into all of our personal struggles with God. But I do think that God allows us to ask him questions and that his tone to us might be gentler than we allow ourselves to think. And the truth might be hard to take. Why didn't you step in to save that person? And God might say, I'm not going to tell you. But there's something else going on here that you can't see. Why didn't you give me a husband or a wife? My whole life, I've longed for one. Why have I had to live single? I can't answer that. But somehow God doesn't make mistakes. Why didn't you save my child? Why didn't you give me one? Why did my son have to have epilepsy and live with it until he was 60? Why haven't you done more for me? And God's answer back to us is often perhaps less than we want him to say. Because in the end, he's drawing us into a place where we have to trust him. One of the central themes of the book of Habakkuk isn't simply asking questions, it's learning to trust. It's from Habakkuk that we read, the just will live by faith. Tone. What does God sound like in your head? Truth. Whatever the hard thing might be that he's saying, he never lies. Trust. In the end, what do you believe about God? One of the most repeated phrases in Scripture is that God is good. And his love endures forever. At one particular season in my life, I stared into the possibilities of life with God and life without him and considered leaving Christianity. I'm sure none of you have ever done that. Considered giving it up. It was too hard. And there was too much heartbreak around me. And I sat down, because I'm a, and I, I, I do everything through thinking. I was going to say I'm a nerd, but I'm trying to avoid that phrase. <laughs> and I made a whole list of the questions I had of God 
on A4 paper, that shape. 33 sheets of questions. And I put them all on one side and I thought, okay, so what do I do? And I took another sheet of paper and put it beside it. And I made a list of all the wonderful things that God had done for me in my life. And I deliberately chose to remember them. And I stopped at 57 sheets. And then I took them all, put them on my little round table, and I got down onto my prayer stool. I have a prayer stool like this, but smaller. And gripped onto the side of it like I do most mornings. And I thought, so am I going to walk away from this or not? And this phrase, as weak as it might sound to you, was the one that came into my head. To whom else can I go? You alone have the words of eternal life. And I made a choice. And that choice was, I'm not considering the alternative. I'm not, I'm not walking down that road. I'm choosing not to walk down that road. I'm choosing to live by faith. I'm making a choice that says, you're the one I'm coming to, because in the end, you're the only one that makes sense of any of this, even if you don't make sense of all of it. And I think sometimes we as Christians, particularly Pentecostal and charismatic Christians, require faith to be certainty when by its very nature it isn't. Faith believes despite what is going on. Faith hears the tone of a God who loves us, holds the truth of a God who knows us and our situation, and trusts despite what might be going on in our lives. And sometimes to be part of a Christian community is to be part of a community where you might lose sight of that for a while, but somebody else in that community is holding it for you. That's why community matters. When you can't hold on to God, firstly, he's holding on to you. And secondly, there's a community around you that might be holding on to you. I'm praying with you and lifting you up into God's arms and saying, we are going to keep you here until this trial ends. Sometimes in our meetings, we want to end with gusto and bang and verve and noise. I really think sometimes we need to come to a place where we say, in the midst of my brokenness, I'm here. With all of my uncertainties, I am present. And I'm not going anywhere. I need you to help me. I'm coming honestly. I'm coming vulnerably. And I'm coming listening. Let's go back to tone. There's the tone. 
Here's the tone of God's answers. If anybody could ask why, I'm not going to suggest that Jesus could because we know that. I want you to think about somebody else for a moment. On that day. I'm not even going to ask you to think about God the Father. Because you'll come back to me and say that he was God. So what about Jesus' mum? Do you think she might have been entitled to say why? She wasn't divine. She wasn't perfect. This was her firstborn boy. I think her why thunders higher and louder and stronger than any why I've ever asked. I think that's probably why Jesus said something to her as he died. Because he looked at her and he looked at his friend John and he said to John, son, behold your mother. Mother, behold your son. Not the answer that Mary would have wanted, I would have guessed. Perhaps she would have wanted Jesus to climb off the cross and say, it's done. The cross is God's answer to why. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this bread is my body broken for you. In the same way, he took a cup of wine and he drank from it after the meal. And he said, this cup is the new covenant of my blood shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins. I drink from it, all of you. God's tapestry of relationship with us is interwoven with the silk of compassion and the gold of mercy. And it is a fabric that sometimes feels slightly abrasive on our bodies, but it always protects us. There's a gentleness about him. And much as I might want to say to you as you come to God with your questions today, He'll set out a six-point sermon in answer. I think the better answer, the fuller answer is, look at my son. He has absorbed your pain and your sorrow. He has carried your sin. Look at his mother. She was able to trust me through all that she went through. I'm not asking you to pretend. I'm not asking you to put on an artificial faith. But I'm asking you in the middle of the uncertainty of your life with all of its questions to believe two things. Firstly, will you believe that I'm good? And secondly, will you trust me that I know what I'm doing.
Will you believe that he is good? And will you trust that he knows what he's doing? That's faith.